1 Samuel 22 says this, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David. And he became a commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Now I'm going to go to Psalm 142, which is a psalm David wrote when he was in the cave of Adullam. It's called a masculine. It is an instructional teaching psalm. It's a psalm, it's a song, it's a prayer, but it was written by David when he's in the cave for our enlightenment and our instruction. And here's what he wrote, and some of you are living this right now. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. I want to talk to you about David's experience in a cave season. The message is called Light in the Cave. Um, I am not one who enjoys tight places. Um, I don't know if I'm claustrophobic because I never give myself a true opportunity to find out. But I used to roll with some guys whose favorite thing to do on the weekend was to go caving. And so they invited me one time. And when I thought of a cave, I thought of a cave. I thought of a big, tall thing with a big mouth, and you walk into it, and you stand, and you look around, and you're like, wow, this big, cavernous place. But when I showed up the one time they invited me to go, I realized I'm looking up. I'm like, where's the cave? Where's the cave? And they said, right here. It was a hole in the ground. It was a subterranean tavern, or not tavern. <laughs> Probably could have used a couple at that moment, but it was a cavern. I went down into it, and I got maybe three minutes into that horrific experience, and I told the three people behind me, get out. I am not going any further. You are in my way. I need to get out of this cave. So I learned once and forever that I am an above-ground mammal. I do not belong where the bugs, the snakes, and the critters, and the gophers belong, I am not going to be walking into a hole. I'm glad I have that choice because I'm going to tell you, whereas I have never done it again in the natural, I have been in many dark, tight, cold, isolating places spiritually. Unfortunately, part of my testimony is that I spent about six years in a cave as a Christian, as a pastor, as one who was pressing into the Lord for everything that the Lord had, and I had no idea at the time that part of that pressing in for 
the answers to bold prayers like, Jesus, make me like you. Father, take anything you want from me. I don't care. I just want to know you. Lord, use my life. Make me into the press. Become like new wine poured out. And those things are easily sung. They're boldly prayed. And then when God begins to answer, we sometimes cry foul, like, what are you doing? And, and his answer is, oh, child, you've forgotten what you sung. You've forgotten what you prayed, but they were good when you sang it, and I know that you meant it, and it was awesome when you prayed it, and I know that you meant it, so I'm just going to answer those prayers. So welcome to the cave, Jeff. Now, some of you won't like that because you have bought into the false gospel that God's primary uh, desire for your life is to keep you perpetually comfortable, never stretched, and uh, that's simply not the Bible. If we're going to be made unto Jesus' image, if we're going to grow in intimacy and knowledge with Jesus Christ, I promise you, you will encounter the cave. King David was on the run. His life had fallen apart. He had been anointed and called to be the future king of Israel. The only problem was there was a man on the throne named Saul, and Saul was the present king of Israel, and he was a demonized, murder-hungry uh, murder lunatic that had made David his number one target. And David had entered into a season where he had lost everything. He was no longer able at this, at this point to be in communication with his mother and his father. They would come later. But he was also, he had lost his position in Saul's court. He had lost his relationship with his wife because he had to run for his life and he was married to Saul's daughter. And so he lost his marriage he lost his career. He lost his connection to his birth family temporarily. And ultimately, he lost his dignity, not to mention his best friend, Jonathan, and his mentor, Samuel. He was just losing and losing and losing in the external inheritance. Everything was being stripped away from him. And finally, at the end of this uh, long and frayed rope, he found himself in enemy territory in a city named Gath, which happened to be the hometown of the giant that he killed, whose name was Goliath. And so David enters into Gath many years after killing Goliath. He's lost everything, and they start to recognize him in Gath. They said, isn't this David that several years ago? killed our champion is this not the great warrior of israel and david panicked and his only thing he had left was his dignity and his reputation and he lost that too what did he do he pretended he was insane he scratched at the city gate feigning himself to be a lunatic and he let all of the spit run down in his beard so that everybody would recognize he's no threat to them so mark it down the cave season for david involved losing everything external that he ever might have leaned upon we need to get reacquainted with the fact that if we're serious about pressing into Jesus, we don't go straight to the power of his resurrection. We must first experience the fellowship of his sufferings. And so King David was in that season, and now he's literally left Gath on the run, and all he does is find a cave that he's about to call home. And so I want to go through Psalm 142, and then I want to finish with what the book of 1 Samuel says about this time in David's life, because I want you to know, the cave is not meant to destroy you. It's the dark place where you are developed. It's the place where God introduces to you himself in levels that you will never meet him when you're not on the cave but on the mountain. And so if we're going to know the Lord in his fullness and we're going to experience the depth of our dependence on him. If we're not going to just sing words and recite verses and do the smarmy Bible Belt Christian routine on Sundays, but if we're really going to press in to know this God who loves to be known 
if we're actually going to be made into the image of his son, Jesus, if we're going to know the thrill of intimacy and the absolute rest of depending on him, it can't happen apart from God entrusting to you your own tailor-made cave season. So if you're not comfortable with that, now is the time to leave because we're about to walk in. First of all, David's longing. We see David longing in Psalm 142 in these first three verses. He's longing for answers. He says, now watch this. And he's in the season right now. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. David was so in such an angst of soul, so under the pressure of having lost everything, wrestling deeply with the fact of, wait a minute, I'm anointed and called by God, handpicked by God to be the king of Israel, and I'm not even welcome as a citizen of Israel right now. The man who's sitting on the throne that is my destiny is Saul. He's wicked. He's trying to kill me. All I did was serve him with an upright heart and and serve Israel on the battlefield with all integrity and all valor. All I've done, Father, is the right thing. And Lord, I need to tell you, my heart is filled with weight and complaint. I need mercy, God. David had entered that first phase of the cave where we are searching for answers. We want to know why. We want to know how. Most of all, we don't want to know, we want to know when. We want to know when the cave season's going to terminate. When am I going to get back out into the light? When am I going to breathe again? When am I going to have my freedom again? When is all of the good stuff that's been promised to me, when's that going to come? And David said, it's not enough for me to sit here silently. And so the pressure that he was experiencing was already producing a verbalizing of his heart's longing. He said, you're going to hear my voice today, Father. And I love the way that, that David and other psalmists conveyed their prayers they don't pray like 21st century bible belt christians we pray politely and nicely we treat god like a foreign diplomat instead of a father and and the psalmist weren't like that the the psalmist is saying you're going to hear my voice david's saying i need you to hear me right now it's awesome he was longing for compassion too in verse two he says i'm going to pour out my complaint i'm going to pour out my complaint i'm going to tell you all my trouble Remember, this was a song that David was writing while he's in the cave. Sometimes your darkest and heaviest moments when you're pressurized in your soul, that that season will produce from you some of the greatest articulations of what's going on inside of you, and you're allowed to do it. You're actually allowed to pour out your complaint before God. You're actually allowed to go before the Lord and say, I am in trouble Um, There is a a vein of Christian thought that says, no, don't don't speak stuff like that. Those are word curses over you. Let me tell you, faith, true, genuine, biblical faith never lies. And if you're in trouble, it's a lie to stand before an omniscient God and say, no, everything's great. It's awesome. Too stressed, uh, too blessed to be stressed, Lord. Everything's going my way. I'm feeling awesome today. Thank you. The Lord just looks at you and says, well, you just made your cave dwelling a little longer because part of what I'm doing to you in your cave season is bringing you down to the dust so you will realize that I'm the only one you can always rely on. And, and we often just want to, you know, we just want to use Christianese and we want to say, oh man, this is great. And we use platitudes and we use cliches. Let me just tell you something. When you pour out your complaint before God, when you rehearse all the trouble you find yourself in, he is not taken by surprise. 
He's not up there saying, I've never heard a human being go through that. You're so weak. You're so pitiful. You're so pathetic. Listen, every single human being, if he or she would be honest, in a cave season must pour out their complaint before the Lord. And it's not spiritual to pretend before an all-knowing God that everything's fine when you know in your heart of hearts it's not. And David's example gives us permission to say, Lord, I need some compassion right now. I need you to know I'm in trouble. How come you're not moving? How come you're not changing things? How come you're not dealing with my, the Saul that's coming against me? But David was also longing for strength. And verse number three says this. He says, my, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. I love this because here's a little flicker of hope here. David says, Lord, it's not just external. It's not just the problems on the outside of me that are, are getting me right now. He says, it's starting to work its way inside of me. And not just inside of me, but to the deepest part of me. Lord, my spirit is getting overwhelmed. It was David's son Solomon who would say and write many years later in uh, Proverbs 18, 14, Solomon wrote this, the spirit of a person will sustain their weakness, but who can bear a wounded spirit? In other words, when your body's wrecked, when your circumstance are wrecked, when your finances are wrecked, when your relationships are fragmenting, when everything on the outside, every crutch that you might have leaned upon has been taken away, you're able to say, oh, but it is well with my soul. I am standing before the Lord and it's well with my soul. But sometimes the pressures on the outside get so intense that even your soul starts feeling it. Even your spirit starts becoming faint or weary. And it's in that moment where the only thing you can say is what David said. He says, when my spirit fainted within me, here's my bedrock. You know where I am. You know my way. So David recognized that even if his own soul and spirit were overwhelmed, the reality for David was that I don't know where I am. I don't know what God's doing, but God knows where I am and God knows what God is doing. And he was able to rest in that. And ultimately, David needed direction. So he says at the end of verse 3, he's saying this. Remember, he's longing for all of this. He wants answers. He needs compassion. He's longing for strength in his spirit. I mean, he's longing for direction. He says, in the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Here's an interesting thing about King David's life. Most of the time, somebody was gunning for him. His whole life, from the time of his anointing, where the Bible says from that day forward, the Spirit rushed upon David. The Spirit rushed upon David from that day forward. David didn't always cooperate with the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit had a very unique relationship with David that you don't see often in the Old Testament, at least it's not verbalized in the Old Testament, that the Spirit seemed to abide upon David very much like the way we experience the Spirit abiding within us. And David is saying this, he's saying, because of this anointing, because of this destiny, because of this calling, I have become a man of warfare. Now, the rest of his life, he's still young, by the way, here. He's just getting started, but already he's been targeted. And he's a fugitive from Israel's highest law, and he's living in this cave, and he ultimately says this, God, they are coming after me. If I were to make a path towards what I think is safety, they're already there. They are waiting for me. Now, can I just speak plainly here? Because I'm not one who likes to cultivate within people a victim mentality. But I'm also not one who likes to pretty up reality. Sometimes it's just the truth that there are people that are after you. I used to say all the time, I'm not, I'm not paranoid, I know they're after me. <laughs> and uh, the, 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 the situation for David was is that 
he, he almost always had somebody after him. And a lot of the times it was people that he loved dearly, whether it's Saul, whom he served, whether it is his own son Absalom, who he wept over when Absalom rebelled against him. The reality was, is David had some human enemies. Can, can I just share with you very briefly something, just maybe by way of practical counsel? Because I think we have lost a lot of unnecessary response to Jesus' teaching that we are to turn the other cheek, we are to love our enemies, and we are to bless those that persecute us. All of that is true. But none of that should be equated to this passive, docile, naive saying, no, they're not really my enemies. If you have somebody that's gunning for you, you're not allowed to hate them. That Jesus says, I need to make sure your heart always belongs to me. But just the fact that you don't hate them, and I, I literally, I, yeah, I'm going to run a rabbit trail real quick. So yesterday, I, I, I made the mistake of, of agreeing to play four-on-four -four basketball with young people and one not-so-young friend who happens to be sitting over there. And so we went to play, and before they arrived at the core, I just pulled up, and I'm with my son Landon. He's going to play too. And, and uh, I get out of the vehicle, and from the top of the hill, about 50 yards away, this guy starts laying into me. He is using language that I don't even want to describe. I definitely wouldn't even, I wouldn't say it, but I don't even want to describe it. But needless to say, I was being called things that I have, and literally, I had not even closed my car door yet. And his objection was this. His objection was that as I was driving down the road that he lived upon, there were little kids over here and there were little kids over here. And I was fully aware of that the whole time. And I was going below the speed limit. But these kids were running around and darting, so I'm, I'm driving a little bit over here from these kids and then a little bit over here from these kids. And I guess he was the father of one of the kids, and he didn't like the way I did it. So he was literally beep, 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 beep. I'm just beeping him out there. He's yelling at me, and he's like, I know you weren't driving fast, but you, you should have done this. And so literally he's just going off on me. And I had to sit there for a minute because I'm saved, but I am not completely sanctified. And I literally sat there and I thought to myself, I have a choice. And my flesh is saying, yes, we have a choice. Let's make it. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, and I, so I sat there and I'm just looking at him. He's about 50 yards away and he took my silence. Even my silence bothered the dude. And, and so he, he took my silence as aggression. And he did this. He, have y'all ever seen a dude do this? It's so pitiful. The guys don't do this. He literally went, I'm not kidding. He literally did that, like bent knee and everything, like he's going he's gonna to fly towards me and devour me. Vulture man has come. And so I sat there, and I thought to myself, I, my flesh wants to kill him. And I just sat there, and oh, the Holy Spirit's so faithful. I said, okay, sir, I hear you. And he looked at me. He's doing this. Knee went down. This shoulder came in. This shoulder came in. He said, why do I bring that up? Because I'm not dumb enough to say I didn't have an enemy in that moment, but I am dependent enough to say I can keep my heart pure when I'm being provoked and attacked, and so can you. What did David do? David didn't pretend he didn't have an enemy. He says, Lord, I need to tell you that my enemies have laid a trap for me. Some of you need to get... Uh, strategic about how you're battling your human opposition. You're not, you're not destined to be afraid of people. 
some of you have a personality at work who's made it their life ambition to make your life miserable and you feel squelched and you feel victimized and you feel unloved and the, the reality is is what you need to do is do what David did in that cave of relational difficulty you're letting in uh, that you're living in you need to let some of the light of God in and begin to tell God all about your enemies I love to tell on people I do. It's like, I'm, I'm not going to talk to other people about them, but I love to get in the presence of the Lord and say, did you, did you see what Mr. Vulture Man did? Did you see that? And, and let me tell you what I was able to do, and I am not the most spiritual guy in the room, literally. I mean, I barely survived that encounter spiritually. But what I did was this morning, I was like, Lord, he is angry. He was so angry before I ever showed up on his street yesterday. He's clearly unhappy. That had very little to do with me. I was just the most accessible object for his anger. I said, God, bring him to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Lord, I used to be just like that guy. Lord, thank you for showing me in a, in a microcosm what I used to be like. And now, Lord, you're sanctifying me out of that kind of stuff. And so I didn't tell, I didn't tell the Lord that it was no big deal. I just said, Lord, he needs Jesus. And so do your enemies too. And so David was at a place where he's telling on his enemies. We're going to come back to that same principle because he does it again a few verses later. So he's longing. God, I need some answers. God, where's your compassion? Don't you care that I'm living in a cave? Lord, when are you going to intervene? Because the external weakness is now becoming internal weakness. I'm starting to feel my circumstances in my spirit. And then Lord, I... I think I could get out of this circumstance, but everywhere I try to go, there's a roadblock, there's an opponent, there's an opposition, there's foes. And so David goes a little bit further, and verse number four, I think, is the emotional verse in this uh, psalm, because David is, is lonely. It's a very simple thought, and it's also a very chronic reality for a lot of people, and, and the church is not immune. In the room today with us, there are far more people than you would think who are literally living in a world of absolute loneliness. And it doesn't mean they're by themselves all the time. It just means that whom, whomever they are with, um, they're disconnected. They're isolated. They're experiencing things that they can't process with others, that they're living in a reality where they're misunderstood or not sought to be understood at all. And when, when, when a cave season finds you, part of the design of the Father is that we would actually come to the conclusion with no bitterness, but with a heavy dose of reality to be able to say, really, Lord, there is nobody on earth that is worthy of my absolute fullest trust and reliance. Now, be careful how you receive that. I'm not saying you shouldn't trust people because I'm not into jaded suspicion and paranoia. That's not, those, aren't, those aren't fruit of the Spirit. But what I am saying is God must convince us that should we lose everything, that there are, in, in that reality, that there is the, rea the reality, the underlying reality, that ultimately he brings us to this place so that we will be convinced from that day forward that when I have lost everything, I haven't lost him. And probably more accurately, he hasn't lost me. And so what does David say? Look, look listen to the expression of this man's soul. Let's, 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 let's love the Lord with our hearts here. Let's go ahead and feel right here. David says, look to the right and see. There's no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. And here it is. No one cares for my soul. 
Now, if we didn't know King David, we would say, well, that's sanctified whining. But the, the actuality is that he was being truthful. He's all by himself in a cave. He's been run off. People are afraid to identify with him at this point. They would come here even before the end of this message. But there was a time where David's living in that cave, and he's absolutely lonely. He's got this search. He's like, look to the right. Anybody can see. I'm looking out there. There's nobody. He says, nobody's taking notice of me. I'm living every single day in abject solitude and isolation. And it produced a sadness in him. He says, his conclusion is, nobody cares about me. Now, the reality, I think, is that that probably wasn't true. But let's try to empathize with people when they feel the way they feel. Some of you are truth arrows, and you're always looking for a bullseye to shoot a scriptural truth arrow in. Let's, let's, let's retire from the ministry of Job's friends. Job's friends had lots of data and information that Job didn't need. What Job needed was some compassion, some understanding, and he actually needed some fellowship. He needed some human relationship that could empathize with him. And David's in the same place. David's saying, I am all alone in this isolating cave. Nobody's coming to rescue me. Nobody's coming to help me. As a matter of fact, nobody's even coming to see me right now. And he had entered into that place. I, I, I want to talk to you just very briefly before moving to the next verse. Some of you are, are in a season where, where literally people just don't get you. And I don't care how cool you are, how stout you are, how big and bold and self-sufficient you are. There's a little, little piece of our heart that always pulses that we, we actually would prefer that somebody understand us. One of the, the nicest things that anybody said to me at a low point in my life, and this is an extremely theological dude, and this goes back years ago. It was a low point for me in ministry, and um, yeah, it, it was right here on this stage. And this is back in the days where there was a lot of warfare in my ministry, and we were in a Sunday service, and um, ooh, man, I'm feeling it right now. And... I didn't even have the vocabulary back then to know, but there was such a foul spirit in the room. And I look back now and I literally believe it was a foul spirit. I literally believe it was a demonic activity. But I told the church, I said, I can't go through the motions this morning. We're going to enter into some intercession and we're going to pray because there's a foul spirit in the room. And at that time, we were called Meadow Baptist Church. And if you've never been a part of a Baptist church, interceding against demonic principalities in the Sunday morning service, it's not quite what we did back then. So it was not met with a whole lot of enthusiasm. It was like, what? And I got down on my knees, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I could not pray through, and I literally dismissed the service. It was probably the lowest point I had ever had in ministry. And uh, I sat on the front row for about 15 minutes by myself, just feeling the weight of it, and it was just, I was like, I felt so alone. And I walked over to my office, and uh, John Mileson sits back in the back, who uh, has one of the greatest shepherd's hearts of anybody I've ever met. He came over, and man's got a graduate degree in ministry. He's a businessman. He's so just used of God. And he could have quoted me a thousand scriptures. And he just walked across the parking lot, knocked on my door, and he came in and just hugged me. And he goes, Jeff, I understand what you're feeling right now. And I thought to myself, I don't have 50 people cheering me on, but I got one dude. And that's all I needed. And friends, sometimes that's all you need. And so while we may not have our traveling personal amen corner, it's, 
it's an awesome thing if we'll slow down every now and then and just recognize, oh man, if I got one person that gets me, I am richly blessed indeed. David at this point in his life felt like he didn't, but he was soon to find out that there were, at least his family was going to come and, and connect with him on that way. And so David's lonely, David's longing, and then we get in verses 5, 6, and 7, and we start, we start seeing David get loosed. This is where the light begins to come into the cave because this is, again, a, it's kind of a consolidated thing that David's writing here. The, the time in the cave was long, and it was lonely, and it was agonizing. And David was wrestling with himself and wrestling with God and wrestling through life circumstances. This is not the way things were supposed to be. When David gets anointed as a teenager in the youth group, and then kills Goliath a short time later, and is now the young celebrated military hero of Israel, and then gets promoted to court musician in the presence of Saul, and then armor bearer to Saul, and then leader over battalions in the ministry. David was believing life, the formula for life is just keep obeying and being faithful, and you go up, 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 and then boom, you explode in glory, and you've reached your destiny. That's the way a lot of us think when we're young. And, and listen, that's just not the way it works. If it works that way for you, I can tell you, if you're unimpeded and you never have a cave and your whole trajectory is this way your whole life, when the glory explodes, it'll be your glory. You'll get the glory. And God doesn't share his glory with another, so what does he do? He intentionally, as, as he calls us to ascend the mountain, he puts some plateaus in there and he just leaves us on a plateau for a little bit. And sometimes he'll, he'll, he'll let us fall into a ditch. You say, God would never do that. No, he does do that because he wants you to know that he can let you fall into a ditch so you'll know that he can rescue you from a ditch. And so by the time you get to that place where you're stepping and walking into your destiny, you're not strutting. You're not telling everybody the seven secrets to a glory burst on their life. That you're literally at that place saying, I shouldn't have made it, and my own weaknesses would have corrupted the whole thing. I could have died over and over again. I never would have made it were it not for the grace of God Almighty and his kindness and patience with me. And so David's about to get loosed here. He's, he's about to get light into the cave. So verse number five, he, he, he again, he chooses to cry out to God. He says, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. In, in essence, I believe David is comparing the protective measures of God to the protective inadequacy of that cave. David's hiding in a cave from Saul. That's what he's doing. And he looks at the cave and he's like, this cave is not my security. You're my refuge. You're the one actually that I am hiding in. Lord, uh, the throne of Israel is not my greatest portion in life. You're my portion. Lord, I may never get the throne. I don't know, but I'm going to tell you, I've got you and you've got me. You're my portion. I'm learning to be satisfied with you while I'm in the cave and I have nothing else to, to satisfy me. L let me ask you a question that I want you to wrestle with because I, I just... When I preach and teach and lead, I just try to treat you like big boys and big girls who are pressing into Jesus because that's what we signed up for, right? And so let me ask you, can you still praise him in the cave? Can you still believe he's good and good to you in the cave? Can you still wait for breakthrough while you're in the cave? And by the way, 
our praise and our waiting are not the means for us to get to the breakthrough. Because a lot of people are like, if I just praise him, I'll get my breakthrough. If I just be patient, I'll get my breakthrough. No, go ahead and say he's worthy of your praise if your breakthrough doesn't come. Go ahead and say that you will worship him and follow him and love him and obey him, even if the darkness of the cave intensifies. You see, that's where we have to get to. We have to get to the point where we become aware that he is worthy of our praise and glory and our trust and our following, even though all of the things that we presumed would be there forever have now been whisked away in a cave season, and yet God remains faithful. That's faith. That is faith. And until we get to places like that in our Christianity, I will say that some degree of our faith resides in the realm of the theoretical. We can feel strong in the faith when we've got a thousand things that we're resting upon and leaning upon and trusting in. But when those things are removed, and as the writer of Hebrews says, we stand naked before the one with whom we have to do. We stand, we got nothing to hide behind. That's when we can know that he is real. Let me tell you, that's actually what strengthens your soul. Um, I hope, and I, I mean this in, in mercy and love for your soul, I hope that you and I go through multiple cave experiences if that's what it takes. Because you know what's worse than the cave? Living your life in the shallows with a theoretical God. That's worse than the cave. And unfortunately, if I can risk a slight sliver of critique on the American church, that's the way probably, in my opinion, 80% of Christians live. They live in the realm of the theoretically good God. But in case he's not good, it's okay, because I've got all this other stuff I can lean upon. So David starts to cry out. And then he says, God, I need you to act. Verse 6, attend to my cry. I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors. He's telling on them. He's telling on them right there. For they are too strong for me. I mean, do you get what's being said here? This is not 21st century contemporary Christian language. What do you mean weak? We're not weak, we're strong. What do you mean we're brought low? We're not, we are highly favored. What do you mean they're too strong for me? Greater is the one that lives in me than these people out there. And we, we so resist inwardly the confessions of our weakness, our groaning, our being brought low, and those that are after us. We so resist it. And we live in a partial dishonesty with ourselves and a partial dishonesty with God. And God actually wants us to get raw. If life is raw, get raw with it. There's a, you don't place polish on it in order to cover up the fact that it's raw in some places. You just get real with it. God's not interested in putting you putting your polish on it. He wants to put his grace on it. And every wound and every heartbreak and every fear and every weakness, instead of David trying to fig leaf over it, he, he says, I just need you to attend to this. He's literally calling for God to come to serve his need. And he says in verse 7, bring me out of this prison so I can give thanks to your name. And watch this, this is prophetic. The righteous will surround me. You will deal bountifully for me, with me. All right, right there, that's light entering the cave. He's still in the cave, but he's not in the dark. Here comes the light. He says, Lord, I want out of this thing. I don't mind telling you when I'm in a cave, uh, 
regularly. This is how it starts out. You enter the cave season. It's dark, it's lonely, it's isolating, you've lost a bunch of stuff, you're not happy, you're getting pressed from the outside, it's starting to get on the inside. And so your instinct is, get me out of here. And you pray that for like a month. Get me out of this. Get, why are you not getting me out of this? I told you last week, I need to get out of this thing. Y'all think that's irreverent, I just think it's important. And, and then you're like, okay, Lord, obviously I'm not ready to get out of this. So teach me your ways as you lead me out of this. And then, you know, a month later, Lord, I'm still here. Just teach me your ways. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to get me out of it because I've met you in some very close and precious and intimate ways. And I thank you that in my weakness, your strength is being perfected. And I'm learning things about you and I'm learning things about me and I'm learning things in the kingdom. And, and Lord, I, I, if you want me here, I'll just be here as long as you're here with me. That's light coming in. And Paul, I'm not, I'm not anywhere near where Paul was. Paul ended up saying in the context of his thorn in the flesh, he said, I will now boast in my weaknesses. Paul was able to praise God for his cave-like seasons. And David says to the Lord, Lord, I'm in the cave and I'm all alone, but the righteous are going to surround me. Friends, that's prophetic. When you're in your isolation and you're in your loneliness and you're in your solitude and you're in your loss and you can see beyond the right now and you can see over it by faith, you can say, I foresee the day when the blessing of God will fall on me again. I foresee the day that I won't be lonely again. I foresee the day that all the good things that I'm learning about you right now, Lord, in this cave season, that you're going to surround me with people and I'm going to bless them with the knowledge and the wisdom that I'm gaining through this terrible experience that I never signed up for but that you obviously saw that I needed. And he says, Lord, I will be surrounded by the righteous again. And Lord, I'm not going to doubt your goodness in the land of the living. You will deal bountifully with me. So David is able in the midst of all of the, the, the nasty that's going on in his life, he just somehow, the light of God comes into the cave. And, he, and David is essentially saying this, the way it is right now is not the way it's going to be forever. And that's the lesson. Friends, that is the practical lesson in the cave for you to recognize it's a season. I speak to you that are in the cave right now. It is a season. It is not permanent. It is not the place where you're going to constantly be unaided. And the presence of God in the present cave is enough and it's sufficient for you. But I'm going to tell you, hope begets hope. Hope births hope. And you've got to come to the place where you can say, this circumstance, this challenge, this opposition, this darkness, this heaviness, this grievance to my spirit, this is not my lot permanently in life. It will end. And God, I believe you're going to deal bountifully with me in the land of the living. You will surround me with the righteous. You will deal bountifully with me. Sometimes you have to pray it. Sometimes you have to declare it. Sometimes you have to sing it. Sometimes you have to write it. In the cave, it, it's very common to hear one voice, and sometimes it's your own voice, and sometimes it's not saying awesome things. And just one more nugget of pastoral counsel. If you're in the cave and all you hear is that negative voice in your head, you need to start speaking with your mouth things that counteract that chatter in your head. You need to start reciting scripture over you. Yes, I'm about to sound very charismatic. You need to start declaring kingdom truth over you. The devil doesn't like it when you recite scripture, and he hates it even worse when you believe scripture. 
And when you start declaring it, it's amazing what happens when you hear your own voice speaking life over you when the voice in your head is speaking death over you. And you just go to war, and David starts speaking life over himself, even to the extent of putting it into a song. And so we get down out of Psalm 142, because that's the way he ends it. The last verse in that song from the cave is, you will deal bountifully for me, or with me. That's his last statement. He's in the cave. He's in the cave, and in the midst of all of that, his final summary statement is, my God will deal bountifully with me. And David says to himself, that's a great place to end this song. Let's wrap it up right there. So somewhere in the midst of him living in the cave, and I'm going to go to 1 Samuel 22 there, and we're going to finish up. Um, There's only two verses. Don't panic. Let's see what it looks like in real time. Because just reading 1 Samuel 22, the first couple of verses, all it says, I'm just going to read it, and then I'll break down into three parts these verses. It says, David departed from Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, they gathered themselves to him and he became a commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. If that's all we had, and we didn't have Psalm 142, it would read like David hung out for like 12 to 18 hours in a cave until his family and his boys came to him. It's amazing to me. We can watch somebody and we know they're going through something. But none of us can get the depths of where where it's taken them. David wrote Psalm 142. The writer of 1 Samuel just gives us two summary statements. And if we didn't have Psalm 142, it would feel like David had had a bad couple of days. But Psalm 142 unpacks the heart and the emotion behind David's cave season. Christians, can I, can I offer this to all of us as a place and an opportunity to grow? Assume that the person or the people that you interact with, assume that they're carrying at least a small measure of hurt in their heart. Assume that they have weaknesses that aren't obvious to the naked eye. Assume that there are deep struggles somewhere touching their lives. I mean, I dare say it, if I asked us to to raise our hands if we, if we have a bruised place in our life that isn't fully healed, I would guess every hand in the room would go up. And sometimes we need to say, Lord, give me wisdom to feel Psalm 142, even though all I'm seeing from his or her life in my, my arena is 1 Samuel 22. Assume that although it looks okay on the outside, Lord, help me to assume that there's some depth, there's some struggle, there's some pain. Say, Jeff, why would we want to do that? Well, because we want to have the compassion of Jesus Christ on people, don't we? We want to love them. We don't want to just stand at a distance and bark out Bible verses to them. My God, help us. No, I mean that. My God, help us. Help us to stop hurling theological grenades at people who are crushed in spirit. Say, well, Jeff, but it's true, and God sends his word and heals them. Right, he does send his word and heal them, but sometimes they might actually need a hug, (laughs) an embrace, a shared tear, an hour of silence while they weep. Those of us that are, are driven 
so strongly by whatever things are true, where Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. He said, I want you to think on some things. And the first thing he started with is, think on those things that are true. And so all of us truth bearers, we come into a situation where we're like, okay, this person's hurting because they're hurting. They're not thinking straight. Some of the things that come out of their mouth are not really doctrinally accurate and theologically sound. And actually, they're bordering on the irreverent. And I hear distrust of God in their voice. And so I've sat here for five whole minutes now, and I can't take any more of that. Let me give you my verses. And we unload on them the the volley of, of, listen, hurting people say really unspiritual things sometimes. Just go ahead and be human with them for a moment. That's not, that's not an invitation for you to pounce on their, their, their struggling theology. I, I love how we want to defend God. You know, somebody says, I can't believe God allowed this to happen. They've lost something, something terrible. How can he love me? We say, well, let me just, you do know John 3.16, don't you? And if you're doubting God's love, let me take you to the cross of Calvary. And let's just see a bloodied and naked, you know, and we get, and we're actually entering, and we're like, God, you see what I'm doing for you? You see, God's like, yeah, I wish you'd leave because you're making a bad situation worse. Why? Because you're not ministering to what he's ministering to. David departed from there, from Gath, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Why is that important? We already know that because that's where David needed to get reoriented. God reorients you to himself in your cave season. We are all perpetually bombarded with forces that want to orient us to those, the source of those forces. So we trust in our money, so we are oriented to the source of income. And we dabble in God, but we trust in our money. And so God sometimes has to say, let let me bring you into just a little bit of a cave for a little bit because this money that you think is going to be your soul sufficiency, that's actually going to end up being poison to your soul. So let me just bring you into a cave for a little bit because I'm I'm happy to bless you, child, and I'm going to provide everything you need, but I want you looking at me, not the money. Sometimes it's a person. And we, we dabble in God, but we worship our children or we worship our spouses or we worship our parents or we worship other important people in our lives. And so, and, and we dabble in God, but we bow. We, we never do it physically. We just do it volitionally and in our hearts. We bow to people. And, and, and when those people are removed from our lives, we found how uh, intentionally we had been leaning on them. And the Lord says, let me just... Let me bring you into a cave for a little bit because I want you to know, I promise you, I am never going to leave you. I, I am with you outside of the cave. I am with you in the cave. I will be with you on the mountain. I will be with you under the mountain. I just want you to know that I will never, ever leave you. You're mine forever. I love you. I set it up that way. And I want you to know that I really mean it. I know you've had a thousand people abandon you or betray you or abuse you, but I want you to know I am never going to leave you. So don't trust, um, overtrust and what other people can bring you. Love them and serve them, but don't trust in them. And so David ends up, here here come the righteous. The Bible says, when his brothers and all his father's house heard that David was in the cave of Adullam, they went down there to him. I don't have time to unpack it, but this is precious because the last time we saw David's brothers, they were crawling all over him at at the battle scene with Goliath, at least Abinadab was. 
They were crawling all over David, misjudging him, misrepresenting him. But now time had passed, and God took that time not only to work in David's heart, but to work in those that didn't understand him. And so now, when David's in his worst possible lowest moment, Jesse and his brothers all come to David in the cave. There are very few things that will tenderize your heart towards a person than when they rush to you in your cave. If you've got some people in your life like that that came to you in your cave season, and I don't have to tell you to love them, they, you will always have a special place in your heart for them. And what is happening here? Well, it continues in verse 2, and that's the last verse. Everyone who was in distress... Everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David and he became a commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Um, one of the things that will happen to you in your cave season is you'll begin to appreciate people even if on the outside they don't seem to have much to offer. If, if I'm wanting to start a movement and God sends me all of the distressed, impoverished, and problematic people, that's exactly what he sent to David. Hey, David, listen, we heard you were in the cave and my life is really like a, it's in deficit back home, so I got nothing else. I, I, can, I, can I come to you? David's like, yeah, yeah, I've been praying for you. Come on, man. And then another group shows up, and they're in debt. Hey, David, we just traveled like 20 miles to get here, and uh, we just we want you to know we want to serve you. And, oh, by the way, we owe Saul a ton of taxation. We've got no money. We are deeply in debt, but, bro, we are so glad to be with you. Thank you. And, by the way, we don't have any money. You got any food? <laughs> and then he gets the bitter in soul. <laughs> Dudes, I mean, this is not like an awesome, you know, resume for let's sign up and take over the world. The bitter in the soul. Yeah, my life stinks, David. Everybody's against me back home. I don't have anything. I'm kind of like where you are right now, except you're, you seem to be rejoicing. I'm kind of bitter, but hey, I'm here. You want me? Here's what's interesting. Cue the C chord. Dun, dun, dun. Here we go partnering with Hannah right here for this moment. Um, that's what Jesus got when he got me and you. The, David's king, the king above every king. When Jesus stretched out in his arms, who ran to him? The bitter in soul. The ones with a debt that they couldn't pay. <laughs> the ones that had a lot of problems. And as the greater David, as David took in all of these hooligans, Jesus, having laid it all down, having entered into that Philippians 2 kenosis, where he emptied himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And wherefore the Father has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name above every name. And when Jesus made his offer, who runs to him? Not many wise. Not many mighty, not many noble, but the foolish and the weak and the indebted and the distressed and the bitter in spirit. And we all just show up at this, this unimpressive yet irresistible place called Calvary. And we say, Jesus, my life is ruined. 
I'm impoverished of soul. I've got nothing to offer you. But I want to identify with you. I want you to know that you've made yourself irresistible to me. And I bring all that I have and I acknowledge all that I don't have and I just come before you and I stand at the mouth of the cave and I say, here I am, will you take me? And Jesus says, will I take you? I came and lived and died and rose so that you'd come to me. Come in. And he welcomes us. That's the kind of king that you have this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. If you're in the room and you don't know this one named Jesus, I'm telling you, come with all your bitterness of spirit. Come with all your debt that you can't pay. Come with your broken places. Come with no answers. He's not asking questions. But do come to him. Do come and say, Jesus, I surrender. I want you as Lord of my life and king of my heart. And Lord, I, I want to welcome you to enter into my cave because I'm never getting out without you. Say, Jeff, how do we do that? Oh, it's not a magic religious prayer, I can tell you that. If you feel the need to surrender to him, you're about 95% there. All you need to do is just confess it. Just tell him, Lord, right here, right now, I surrender it all. I'm coming to you. My fists are not clenched anymore. My hands are open. It's a posture of receiving and surrendering. I just want you to be the Lord of my life. And I, I give myself to you. I confess that I need you. I confess that you're the Lord. I get off the throne of my own heart. I'm not going to run things anymore. I want you to be the Lord of my life. And I surrender to you. So if that's you, I, just, I want all of us to bow our head and close our eyes. And I'm just going to pray this. And if if you'll say yes to this, this is not a magic prayer. I don't even know what I'm going to pray, but it's an expression of faith. And if you'll put your yes on this towards God, not towards me, towards God, if you'll say yes, he's already said yes to you. Lord Jesus, I need you and right now I want you. I don't want to be in my cave or any cave alone. I believe you'll receive me today. And I put my trust in you right now. Thank you that you died for my sin. And thank you that death couldn't beat you because you rose again. I stake my whole eternity on trusting you. I welcome you as my Lord right now. Now, friend, if you've prayed that prayer, I stress to you, there's no magic in the prayer. It's the groan of your heart that he hears. And if today was that day for you, as we dismiss here in 10 seconds, come let me know that today you said yes to King Jesus. God bless.